There is coming a day, a most fearsome and terrifying day, a day that for me inches ever closer. I hear the drum beats of the day getting louder and louder and louder. And the clouds that form around this day are dark enough to blot out the sun itself. Some of you have already endured this day. Some of you have already witnessed this day. Some of you have already weathered these dark clouds and have come out of the darkness relatively unscathed. Some of you have withstood the day once, but now wait for it in, with great concern to fall upon you once again. Some of you will endure the day once. Some of you will endure it many times. Some of you have already endured it a number of times. It's a day no parent looks forward to. It's a day that I'm loathing, but it's a day that I know must inevitably arrive. That day when my son asks me for the keys to the car. For the very first time. And if you're anything like me, handing over the keys will not be easy. As our children, with their newly minted Ontario driver's license, will be taking our car out into the world, where they will drive on roads that are filled with rules and stop signs and speed limits and other cars filled with impatient drivers. On this day, our child will plunk him or herself behind the wheel of a 3,000-pound mass of steel and glass a mass which, by the way, is branded with license plates and a VIN number that ties it directly back to me. On that day, our child will represent us on the roads of Grimsby, on the roads of Hamilton, on the roads of Beamsville, and whatever other road they choose to drive upon. And on the day when we finally hand the keys over to our son or daughter, or on the day when you have already multiple times handed over the keys to your son and or daughter, the hope is that all of the training and all of the lessons that we've taught and all of the driving classes that we paid for will translate over as they start this new phase of their life, driving a car without their parents in it. Handing over the keys is quite a big deal, isn't it? In so many ways. If you go on vacation and you want someone to come over to your house and look after it, you hand them over to the keys to your door. And by handing the person the keys to your door, you are entrusting them to be faithful to the responsibilities that come with possessing those keys. If it's your time to leave this earth and pass on, Sometimes you'll leave a key to the safety deposit box that has all of your valuables in it because you are handing that over to someone else. Giving keys over to somebody is to give them a level of authority over whatever it is that that key opens or locks. And if we recognize the importance, if we understand the importance of handing keys, of entrusting somebody with our keys to whatever it is, if we understand this on a human level, 
how much more must we, when we hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the text today, grasp the magnitude, understand the gravity, recognize the responsibility of Christ bestowing upon his disciples the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Here again the word of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 19 to the disciples. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now the New American Standard Version, or the Legacy Standard Version, actually give the sense of the text a little bit more clearly. So hear what those versions say. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So let's set these words in the context as we quickly move again through verses 13 to 18. If you want a more detailed look, go back to the message preached about five weeks ago. It's online. See, Jesus spoke these words about handing the keys over to the disciples after, they, after asking the disciples this most consequential and important of all questions. The single most important question for every individual human being on earth. Because your answer to this question carries with it either eternal life and blessing or eternal consequence and damnation. This is no flippant question. It's no meaningless question. This is the only question that really truly matters. It's the only question of any lasting and ultimate value. How do you answer this question? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Jesus asked the disciples first, who do people say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And the crowds, they had all sorts of assumptions about who Jesus is. Perhaps he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. The Pharisees and the scribes identified Jesus as one who is in league with the prince of demons. And as the people pondered all of these suggestions, all of these ideas about who Jesus was, who he is, who he could be, Jesus posed the question again, but this time he posed it very specifically to the disciples as if to say, all right, so this is what everybody else is saying about me. These are all the ideas that are going on about me out in the culture. Are you going to listen to what they are saying? Are you going to run with the crowd and believe whatever they say about me? Will their ideas about my identity determine what you believe about me? What do you say? Who do you say that I am? And the you here, it's emphatic, it's pointed, it's a clear and direct question put forward to the disciples by Jesus Christ. And Peter immediately answers on behalf of the disciples, saying in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter knows who Jesus is. Peter knows that he is the Christ, meaning he is the long-awaited Messiah. This Jesus is the Deliverer, the King of Israel, the long-awaited Son of David, the one sent by God and anointed with the Spirit to save his people from their sins. And Peter also professed that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And as I said a few weeks ago, Peter might not have had all the details figured out yet. He couldn't have penned a theological treatise giving us uh, an explanation of the Trinity, but he did grasp the uniqueness of Jesus. He did grasp that there was something special about the relationship of Christ with the Father. 
He did recognize that Jesus is in some way divine in that he shares in the nature of the Father. And to this, Jesus replied in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, the Lord worked in the hearts of the disciples supernaturally, opening their eyes to see the true identity of Christ. And not only had the Lord blessed Peter and the disciples with the revelation of this glorious truth, but he continued in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, Jesus here told Peter, you are going to play a unique and important role in the establishment of the church. Now, this is not Jesus installing Peter as the first pope. This is not Jesus establishing or instituting some sort of hierarchy among the disciples. No, this is Jesus choosing Peter to be the initial instrument in the formation of the church. This speaks to chronology, not hierarchy. Because when you go to the book of Acts, it's easy to see how the Lord used Peter to preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost and bring in the first converts. It's easy to see how the Lord used Peter to encourage and to strengthen the early church. And in this way, Jesus used Peter to build his church. A church that no gate can withstand. A church that is given the task of trampling the gates of hell or opening those gates with some keys that have been given to us in order to set the captives free. And as Jesus continued immediately after speaking about the gates of hell being unable to withstand the advance of the church, he said this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So what does Jesus mean here when he speaks of giving the keys of the kingdom of heaven? See, Roman Catholics will seize upon this text to justify their complicated system of hierarchy and authority. They teach that in handing the keys to Peter, Jesus founded and organized the papacy. According to them, Peter is the man to whom Christ gave the keys, the singular man to whom Christ handed this authority. Meaning, Jesus made Peter the highest authority in the church, and as the holder of the keys, Peter could lay down authoritative rules that everybody else must follow. Peter was the primary voice to whom all others must yield. Now, the only problem with that is what we read in the Bible. As we read Paul's letter to the Galatians, for example, we don't see Peter pictured as a pope or as someone who is above reproach. Listen to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, when Paul recounts a, 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 a confrontation with Peter. He wrote, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But then when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, or to Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, if Peter was a pope to whom everybody should yield, then everybody should have just done what Peter was doing, right? It wouldn't have been hypocrisy, as Paul says. 
But here in that text, we see that Peter's actions actually required Paul's rebuke. That Peter acted hypocritically. That Peter, by his deeds, even led Barnabas astray. And so Paul publicly chastises Peter in front of everyone. Oh, how much do we love being chastised in front of everyone? doesn't sound very papal to me, but the Roman Catholics still teach to this very day that Peter was the head of the church by virtue of being given the keys and then was given the authority to pass on those keys or how they say, what they mean is to pass on that apostolic authority to another next in line. And this belief has led to a rather convoluted system of electing popes and recognizing them as chosen by God. The problem with this whole scheme is once again that this text does not teach such a thing. Nor does any text in Scripture teach such a thing. It's not scriptural. And historically speaking, this process of papal succession became, in the hands of sinful human beings, a corrupt system of power plays, financial windfalls, suppression, and oppression of peoples all over the world for a thousand years. But it's not only the Roman Catholics who mis misunderstand this text. This text is also a favorite among today's more hyper-charismatic groups as well, as many self-styled prophets make claims to possess the keys themselves. They make claims that they possess the, author the ability to speak authoritatively for God with what they call new and from God or a fresh word from God. Run! Get away! We have been given Scripture. Scripture is our word from God. We don't seek new and fresh revelation. We always turn back to the ancient word that God has given us. We keep traversing the old paths, not looking for new ones or fresh ones. We've also got people who use this text to claim that they are renewed apostles, just like Peter, vested with a similar type of authority. Again, as an aside, can I just say that any ministry or denomination that has the word apostle or apostolic in its title, stay away. Still others make claims about holding the keys to unlock heaven's blessings for those who follow, with their, follow in their teaching. And others, some of the more prosperity guys, speak about the keys as tools from heaven with which the Christian can unlock victory in our own lives. All of these are grievous abuses, misrepresentations, and misunderstandings of the Lord's Word here. And it keeps many people from truly appreciating the gravity and the seriousness of the responsibility that Christ laid upon not only the twelve disciples, but also to His church as a whole. The keys of the kingdom of heaven have a definite function according to our text. They are used, look at it, in 1619, they are used to bind what has already been bound in heaven and to loose what has already been loosed in heaven. You see that, right? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's the purpose and function of the keys, to bind what has been bound in heaven and to loose what has been loosed in heaven. And this binding and loosing twice in the new, who do you say that I am? The second is in Matthew 18, 18. When the responsibility of binding and loosing is laid upon the church as a whole in the matter of disciplining a professing believer who refuses to repent of their sin. We're going to look at both of those this morning. 
So the first instance of binding and loosing or using the keys spoken of by Christ as Peter comes as Peter has correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus makes, that, makes it immediately clear to all the disciples that this realization, this recognition of who Christ is didn't come to Peter because Peter was smart enough to see it. It didn't come to Peter because Peter had these tremendous powers of deductive reasoning. No, Peter, along with all of the other disciples, could only come to this truth, could only conclude that this is true about this truth about Jesus because the Father in heaven revealed it to him. This is the same for everyone, for all of humanity. In like manner, every single one of us, left to our own devices, will default not to understanding Jesus and appreciating Him and striving to find Him and know Him, we will all default to suppressing any knowledge of God that we might see in creation. That's Romans 1. And even more, even if we didn't, no one on their own would ever be able to search for, grasp at, and attain the knowledge of the truth. No one can look at a tree No one can turn over a stone. No one can plumb the depths of the ocean and conclude that Jesus is God come to us in the flesh. That Jesus lived a perfect sinless life, securing by that life the righteousness that God requires of all who would dwell in His presence. And that this perfection is then credited to the account of all who put their faith in Him. No one could watch a buffalo run across the open plains and and think to themselves, Jesus died on a cross for me. Jesus voluntarily gave himself for me at the cross. Jesus allowed the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders and the crowds to cry out for him to be crucified. And when their voices prevailed, Jesus allowed the Romans to drive nails into his hands and into his feet. And as they hoisted the cross up with Jesus fastened to it, the wrath of God the Father fell upon Christ, not because of anything Christ did, but for what we've done. Nobody could see a fish in their aquarium swimming around and think, Christ bore the wrath that I deserve in my place. Christ died the death that I should have died in my place. No one on their own could see that Jesus didn't stay dead, but was raised on the third day, displaying beyond any shadow of a doubt that his work is acceptable to God the Father. And that after 40 days, Christ ascended to heaven where he sits at the Father's right hand, right now, interceding on our behalf. Because such knowledge is too lofty to attain. It is too mysterious for us on our own to grasp. And apart from someone being entrusted with this specific revelation of God, without a people entrusted with the teachings of Christ as they are the beautiful feet who bring the gospel to the world, such knowledge would lay wrapped up and concealed as in the darkness of night. No, humanity always defaults to suppressing what can be known about God. Humanity is therefore foolish while claiming to be wise, as Roman tells us. Humanity is futile in their thoughts and darkened in their hearts. Humanity defaults to exchanging God for the creation, which brings about the wrath of God upon creation. And the wrath is revealed as God gives to sinners and idolaters what they want. He gives them up to their wicked passions. And what are those wicked passions? Three things. 
the dishonoring of our bodies. Is that evident in today's society? The dishonoring of our passions and the debasing of our minds. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, this is the lion's share of humanity. Dishonoring bodies, dishonorable passions, debased mind. And so how do they get out? How do we get out from this? So Jesus would commission the disciples to go and to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that he has commanded us. The actual giving of the keys would come as Jesus ascended into heaven. Noted in the text, Jesus uses the future tense. He didn't give it to them right here. He says, I will give you the keys. And in handing the keys to the apostles, Jesus was entrusting to them the proclamation of, the heralding of, the preaching of, the witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostles were charged with revealing the will of God and the teachings of Christ to the nations. With calling the nations to observe everything that Christ has commanded. They were tasked with revealing and calling upon people to believe, repent of their sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to live according to that will. They were called with revealing that which has already been bound in heaven and that which has already been loosed in heaven. Meaning, that which is permitted and acceptable to God and that which is forbidden by God. And many of these same disciples would, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commit those teachings to writing. And it's those writings that we still look to as our authority and as our foundation 2,000 years later in the Scriptures. The magisterial reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, both understood the keys here to refer to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. The holding out of the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone to the people. Because by this, the keys of the kingdom of heaven both opened the door and for all who would hear and believe to enter into the kingdom. And at the same time, they shut the doors to all who refuse to repent of their sin and turn to Christ. And so these apostles, first entrusted with the keys, were tasked with preaching the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel in which the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as the Apostle Paul would write in Romans 1. So you see, this binding and loosing is not the handing over of some sort of rubber stamp to Peter, the apostles, the church, or the individual Christian. At no time are you and I permitted to, to walk around and simply pronounce what we like and want to see as authoritative and oblige everyone around us to submit to our whims, nor are we permitted to harass or condemn or accost those we don't like because they don't agree with our personal bindings and or loosings. This is not what the text is referring to. It's not the installation of a few self-styled gatekeepers who think they possess some sort of supreme authority over everyone else and so can tell everyone else what they can and can't do in accordance with what they think should be and shouldn't be done. Listen to me. Be very careful about taking on yourself this type of papal, popery, popic, pope, I don't know what the word should be, popey type of role. 
Peter wasn't given permission to simply walk around and declare what he thought was right and wrong. I like this. Uh, I'm going to bind the church with this for 2,000 years. I like this. All right. Or I don't like this. Church, you can't do that for, until Jesus comes back. That's not what it was. The apostles weren't given the ability to simply forbid or allow the activities of others and then heaven would be like, oh, that's what Paul said? We're in. No, Peter, in the same way that the Lord blessed Peter with the revelation of Christ's identity, that same Spirit carried the apostles along by the Holy Spirit, revealing to them what is bound and loosed in heaven and then calling upon them to continue that information, to teach the church, to teach the people, to teach the world those things. And knowing this, the Apostle Paul could then write to the Ephesians that the church, the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Ephesians 2.20. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Because the apostles, by the power of the Holy Spirit, taught, proclaimed, and revealed to the nations the will, the word, the mighty work of God, and the mystery of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now here we are. We find ourselves in the year 2022. The foundation that is the apostles' teaching is in our possession. But they've all died. They've all gone on to be with the Lord. And so the keys of the kingdom of heaven, where are they now? They're in our possession. We are now charged with the awesome responsibility as representatives of Christ, as ambassadors of Christ on earth, of carrying on the mission commanded by Christ and begun by the apostles. And like drivers given the keys to a car are commanded to follow the rules of the road, and we all hopefully strive to become better and more effective drivers, right? Hopefully. In even greater measure, as those into whose hands the keys of the kingdom of heaven has fallen, we are to be hyper-focused, supremely focused on the task at hand, representing with our lives and declaring with our mouths the glories, the wonders, the rule, the teachings, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to the world. It's your turn. It's my turn to proclaim Christ to the nations, to hold open the gates of the kingdom and beckon everyone to come in. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Come in. Come in. Everybody, come one. Come all. Jesus saves. To clearly pronounce the life-giving, eternal life-bringing message of the gospel. But we also... Those same keys are also used to clearly pronounce to those who refuse the offer that the gates will be shut to them. But they can and will be opened upon repentance and faith in Christ. So Christian, follower of Jesus Christ this morning, the keys of the kingdom are in our hands. And what are we doing with them? What will we do with them? Have we represented Christ well? Have you and I been up to the task? Are we using them to, in the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone we can? And hear this. Satan will do everything in his power to keep you from this central duty. He might turn you in the direction of the Pharisee so that you will get 
all hot and bothered over everything that's happening in the world so that you will focus more on the cultural wars rather than the spiritual ones. Satan will work to avert your eyes so that we are satisfied with cultural victories more than we are with spiritual ones. He'll try to turn our gaze away from the fact that those we are engaging with in culture, in what is called this culture war, those who are dishonoring their bodies, who, are dis- who possess dishonorable passions and debased minds, as Romans 1 tells us, these are the very ones that we are called to proclaim the life-giving message of Jesus Christ to. People are not obstacles that we must overcome and you must be careful never to get to that place or you are a Pharisee. So are you too busy with some other task to fulfill your obligations as holders of the keys of the kingdom of heaven? It's not enough to go and simply pronounce condemnation and you're wrong and this person's wrong and that person's wrong. That's not enough. That's easy. That's simple. Everybody salivates over this wonderful opportunity that we have now with social media and everything to just simply tell people, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're a dummy, you're an idiot, you're wrong. But to end there is not enough. And even if, let's just say, even if you shaped society to your preferred image perfectly and nobody was saved, would you be content with that? Would you be happy with that? If you would, you are not holding the keys properly. If you are not holding out Christ to people, if you are saying and doing things in culture that hinder people from seeing Christ by your words and your deeds and the way you carry yourself, you are not obeying the command of the Lord, but are instead more like an irresponsible, inattentive, and unconcerned driver who does not quite understand or appreciate how significant and how consequential, how life and death the duty and the role assigned to you and I actually is. This is what Jesus meant when he when he told the apostles, and by extension us, that they would be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven by which to bind what has already been bound and loose what has already been loosed. For us, it means we continue proclaiming. We continue teaching Christ. We continue calling on the world to obey everything Christ has commanded as he has set down in the scriptures. And the good Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a great explanation. He wasn't writing about the keys, but he explained them well here. And I quote, This is the business of the church. To tell the world as it is of this great and glorious salvation which is in Christ Jesus. He is the only hope of the world. There is no hope in men. The only hope is in the Son of God and our business is to represent Him, to glorify Him among the people of the world, to magnify His name, to show them the excellencies of His person and of His great salvation. That is our business. We alone do that in the world. The church is to preach Christ and Him crucified as the only hope, the only Savior of the world, to declare that there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And Christian people alone have that message and they alone can present it to the world. 
The world does not know this message. It does not believe. That is the cause of its trouble. And so we are called uniquely to bear witness to Jesus Christ and to magnify Him, end quote. That's what it means for you and I to hold the keys. So that's number one. Number two, the second, as we read in Matthew 18, 18, a text that we'll look at in further greater detail later, you see again, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's the language of the keys, once again. And here, again, the NASB or the LSB clarifies in the same way, saying whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And so the reference to the keys here in Matthew 18 is tied directly to the church's role in disciplining and excommunicating those who profess Christ, who claim to be a brother, who claim to be a believer, but who refuse, even when the church exhorts them to repentance, to turn from their sinful, wayward, unforgiving ways. This is another of the great obligations of the church, the discipline of unrepentant sinners in the church for the purposes of restoring the sinner and the purity of the church as a whole. And so, when the church correctly follows the process that is laid out for us in Matthew 18, when the church correctly follows the process of spiritual discipline and pronounces the sentence of excommunication upon somebody, we read in verse 18, 17, that we are commanded to let that person be to us as a tax collect, as a Gentile and a tax collector. So listen, when we as a church make uh, the pronouncement, we are declaring the already existing judgment, the already existing witness of heaven against such a person. And in the process, if in the process of disciplining the sinner their heart is changed and they recognize their error and repent, then the church jubilantly restores such a person to fellowship and this restoration of a person who spent a season like the prodigal son, eating from the troughs, eating the pods of the swine, is a declaration of heaven's acceptance of that person back into the fellowship. We merely declare what we know heaven has already said. And in the law of the Lord, it is very clear how seriously the Lord takes the purity of the community of faith, how seriously discipline is, uh, is for the life of the church. For example, if you just look at Deuteronomy, you will see this phrase, purge the evil from your midst, used in reference to the community of Israel for a multitude of reasons a multitude of times. Deuteronomy 13.5, in reference to false prophets, we are told that if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes... They shall be put to death if their dreams are not correct. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. And listen, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Or, in this way you shall eliminate the evil from among you. Again, in Deuteronomy 17, if a citizen of Israel did what was wrong in the sight of the Lord and transgressed the covenant of God by serving other gods or, or by uh, bowing down to other gods, the command was to bring that person to the gates of the city and stone them to death with stones. Here's what it says, the hand of this Deuteronomy 17, 17. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your 
midst. And again, in Deuteronomy 17, 13, if there was a legal declaration given by the Levitical priests and the person upon whom that declaration was made or that pronouncement was made went and said, I'm not going to listen to that. That didn't go in my favor. That's not, forget it. That person was to be put to death. In Deuteronomy 17, 13, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Deuteronomy 20, 21, again, the same sentence of purging evil referred to stubborn, rebellious children. Put them to death, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Again, in Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man is found laying, lying with the... Uh, in, uh, no, in 22:21, if a woman lies about her virginity to her husband before they get married and it's found out, put her to death, and so you purge the evil from your midst. In 22:22, Deuteronomy, in reference to adultery, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So, you sh- so shall you purge the evil from Israel. And finally, again, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 7, referring to kidnapping another, kidnapping an Israelite in order to enslave them or to sell them into slavery, we read, um, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Over and over and over and over again, the Lord commanded his people to purge the evil from their midst in order to protect the purity of his royal priesthood, to protect the purity of his holy nation, the people that he has called to himself. And this phrase, purge the evil from among you, is actually repeated in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 5.13 and you will see the Apostle Paul say it, purge the evil from among you. This is another aspect of the keys to the kingdom of heaven, another facet of the binding and loosing. And it's one we see that Paul commanded the Corinthian church, and by extension all churches, to take seriously. You see, in context, the Corinthian church had avoided its duty to discipline a sexually immoral man in, in its midst. You can read it in 1 Corinthians 5, 1-2. Listen. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So you see, the Corinthians here, instead of following the word and the teaching of our Lord to purge the evil from among them, instead they patted themselves on the back. They admired themselves for their tolerance and their lack of judgment. Look at us. We are so non-judgmental. We're a pretty great group of people. Look how accepting we are of everything and everyone. And notice what Paul calls this. He says, you are arrogant. You are celebrating in arrogance about something that should be bringing you to your knees in weeping and in mourning. And instead of deluding themselves in this way, they should be mourning over this man's wickedness and their response to it. They are not to celebrate or to pat themselves on the back for being so tolerant. Jesus gave this authority also to the disciples in John 20, verse 23, when they were at this time the church. He declared, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So you see, it's not given to any one person given to the community, assembled in his name, as those who call upon his name and who seek to live according to his word. 
So the removal of an unrepentant sinner from our midst is something that we are to take seriously. The removal of an unrepentant sinner from our midst, from a congregation who refuses, a person that who refuses to repent of their sin, impacts the whole community of faith. In the Old Testament, the community took the sinner out of the camp and stoned them to death, revealing to and reminding the Israelites of the gravity of sin in their midst. And the stoning was something everybody took part in. It was a communal event. In the New Covenant era, thankfully, stoning has given way to redemptive excommunication, meaning that any and all acts of judgment and discipline meted out by the church gathered in the name and in the power of Christ are done for the purpose of protecting the church from the spread of sin in its midst in hopes of the repentance and restoration of the sinner. And church discipline is our responsibility. It is your responsibility. It is the entire congregation's responsibility. When we are gathered in the name and the power of and in the power of Christ, he is present and when the church pronounces judgment, it is in and with the power of Christ that we do so and we recognize based on the word of God that a an unrepentant sinner is bound. And you can see how Paul told them to do it in 1 Corinthians. Look at it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. What did he tell the Corinthians to do with this unrepentant man who was carrying on a sinful relationship with his father's wife? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, he says, you are to deliver this man over to Satan. The word deliver here means judicial sentencing, handing over for punishment. The unrepentant sinner is sentenced by the church to delivering deliverance back into the domain of Satan. The unrepentant sinner has forfeited the privilege of participation in the assembled church, a church that Paul, the Lord, the disciples have taken great pains to keep pure. This is what the removal from among you in 1 Corinthians 5, 2 is referring to, a delivering over to Satan, a delivering over to the power of Satan, or a handing over to them, and they must now live. This unrepentant sinner must now live without the care and without the support of the church community. Now, church, this is something we never do with any sort of relish or fleshly pleasure. This is a grievous situation. This is something we never abuse. We deliver unrepentant sinners to Satan in grief and in hope that the sinner might be shaken from their unrepentant attitude and they may come back to the church in repentance, being fully restored to the church. But before that happens, they must recognize the need to repent of their sin. They must recognize the need to put their sin to death. Now listen too. Expulsion from the Christian community is a real thing. It means that you are out of the church. You are out of the church that assembles in the name and power of Christ. You are excluded from the joys and the benefits of participation in the community. You are removed from the church, meaning you are removed from the opportunity to sit under the word of God preached, to take part in the ordinances administered. Again, the hope being that this removal remedies the person's sinfulness. Handing over a, a, an unrepentant sinner to Satan is meant to be a redemptive act. The hope is restoration. The hope is repentance. But while they are under the sentence of the church, the judgment of the church, the sinner is to understand that you are a child of the devil. And you must truly repent and come to Christ. 
when a church rightly delivers a wicked, unrepentant sinner to Satan, we merely say what heaven has already said. Think about that for a second. What this means is that if someone goes to First Gospel Church and there they are rightly put under church discipline and the church pronounces them excommunicated and heaven agrees, they can't merely walk down the street and go to Second Gospel Church and assume that their soul is safe because it isn't. And as a church, if we truly care about people's souls, we must not welcome into this assembly those who are under proper church discipline by another assembly. And listen, if that is you, if you're here today or if you're watching online today and you haven't told me that you're under discipline from another church somewhere else and you've simply decided to come here to escape whatever's going on in your other church, stop coming here. I don't want you here. Stop attending here until you have properly dealt with your sin. You are not welcome here. We agree with the pronouncement of both your church and heaven that you have been delivered over to Satan and your leaven is not welcome here. And hear me, heaven bears witness against you. You are not a brother. You are not a sister. And if you refuse to, if you refuse to deal with your situation, but we do hope you will. We hope and pray that the Spirit would convict you of your sin and you would experience the joys of repentance and the wonder of grace and restoration. Leave your flesh and your sin behind and experience the rest that forgiveness brings. Listen to the wonders of forgiveness from the lips of, from the pen of uh, David in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Oh, the joy of forgiveness. Oh, the joy of repentance. Oh, the joy of restoration. Oh, the joy of what Paul wrote next in 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Oh, the joy that comes with the destruction of the flesh. The flesh the sinful passions that are at war against the spirit, the carnality, the passions and the lusts of your fleshly, unregenerate nature. Paul, when writing to Timothy, tells of handing two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme, or they may learn not to blaspheme, or that their flesh might be destroyed. Now, just to be clear, all of us are engaged in a battle against the flesh. So if you're engaged in a battle against the flesh, this is not to say, oh, we're about to excommunicate you. That's not what's happening here. The difference between the believer and this man at Corinth with his father's wife, the difference between the believer and these men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, is that the believer recognizes that we are in a battle against our flesh. And when the flesh gets the upper hand in our lives, when we know the good we want to do, but we don't end up doing the good we want to do, but we end up doing the evil we didn't want to do, we hate when that happens. This man who is with his father's wife 
didn't care. If you hate when you sin and then run to Christ for forgiveness when you do mess up, that's a good thing. The man in Corinth had certain desires and he was going to live out those desires no matter what anyone said. No one was going to tell him he was wrong. He was unrepentant, unconcerned, and lacked any desire to be like the Savior. So the assembled church and the power of Christ delivering this unrepentant sinner over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh has a particular goal, as we see once again in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Because you and I know, if we read our Bibles, there is coming a day, a day even worse than when your kids want the keys to the car. A day in which the Lord will judge the living and the dead. A day upon which those who are unrepentant will face the horrible tragedy and terror and weeping of God's wrath upon them as He visits His righteous judgment upon all who have refused and rejected the salvation offered to the world through Jesus Christ by those who held the keys. Upon those who refuse to obey Christ and wage war against the lust of their flesh but instead lived according to their sinful passions. And our hope, as we exercise these obligations and commands, is that everyone we come into contact with would avoid the judgment of God on that day, but would rather call out to Christ, who richly and freely offers forgiveness and abundant life to any and all who come to Him. So Paul says there are those who convince themselves that they are believers, but actually have no desire to live for Christ. Instead, they chart their own path. They live sinful lives in the process and they are deluded. They are self-proclaimed brothers who are in for a rude awakening on Judgment Day. And so out of love, the church exercises the keys of excommunication when necessary and discipline when necessary out of love for the purity of the church and out of love for the soul of the unrepentant. The church exercises judgment in hope that the one judged might be saved on the day of the Lord. And listen, the one who is under judgment might never return, and we do grieve over that. But they might also repent and be restored, and we will celebrate that. The underlying intention of discipline, again, is repentance and restoration out of love for Christ and the sinner in question. Now, I understand this is a tough concept. Everything we have been taught culturally rebels and kicks against such a notion. But listen, my friends, sin is a serious issue. Sin can so easily spread through and destroy a fellowship if it is not clearly, decisively, and firmly addressed and dealt with in accordance with the Word of God. So individually, if you are living a life of sin, unrepentant and without remorse, holding bitterness, arrogant, proud, and living in that, you must repent. This church cares about your soul. Look to Christ, heed his commands, and live a life dedicated to his glory. And communally here as a church, as an assembly gathered in the name of Christ, we are vested with an enormous amount of responsibility. We are vested with an enormous amount of authority to care for to keep ho- and to keep holy as church. And we must take seriously the necessity of church discipline should it arise. Because this is commanded by the Lord. This is an obligation placed upon us by the Lord. 
The purging of evil from the midst of God's people is a serious duty. And the Lord takes the purity of worship ascribed to his name, the purity of the lives of his children, and the purity of his church very seriously. So, how are we doing in our obedience to Christ in this regard? How are we as a church in whose possession is the keys of the kingdom of heaven doing in using those keys? As we herald the gospel to the sick and the lost and the dying of our world, as we hold open the gates of heaven so that sinners might hear the gospel, as we engage with those we see as our cultural enemy, calling upon them to repent of their sins, to trust in Christ and enter the kingdom, how are we as a church taking seriously the command of our Lord to enter into church discipline with unrepentant sinners, to clearly, firmly, and directly deal with sin in one another's lives? How are we in whose possession are the keys of the kingdom of heaven with which we are called to bind what has been bound in heaven and loose what has been loosed in heaven? How seriously are we taking the word of God in regards to these issues? I pray, in closing, that we might recognize this, the gravity of all this. That we might understand the titanic responsibility, the gigantic responsibility that is placed in our hands, that has been handed to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are those into whose hands he has placed such an important set of keys. How are we going to drive? May we seek to honor him in our obedience to his call to make disciples May we hold out to all the most precious offer of Jesus Christ to believe and be saved. And may we strive to maintain the purity of his church, all to the glory of his name. Father, we praise you, we honor you, and we thank you. We praise you for entrusting to the disciples the keys of the kingdom. And we thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit they were faithful. We thank you for what we read in the book of Acts, that 3,000 people were added to the, king, to the church as Paul or Peter proclaimed the gospel. And that thousands more were added, and thousands more were added. And from that day to this, people are entering into the kingdom of heaven every single day because your faithful children, in whose hands are the keys of the kingdom, hold out to lost sinners the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray that that's what we would be known for. We would be known as those who take these obligations seriously. And we pray for the empowerment of your Holy Spirit as we, as we labor to obey. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.